c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tourette, don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And today we're on up to part two of uh, Barbara Bakeland. Should be very fun. I'm on <laughs> tenterhooks as we speak. I think we have different definitions of fun than like, you know, sane people who are allowed out of their houses unsupervised. Nonetheless, I am on hooks. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully figurative ones and not literal ones. <laughs> we all have our hobbies, Janelle. I had one of my professors say that, just in the middle of class, unbidden. Somebody somebody used the word crazy, or they were like, what is normal? And he's like, well, you know, do you know how many people in New York City are hanging by their nipples for sexual gratification right now? <laughs> it's a lot. And we're like, that's not a fact that any of us needed to think about. That's not going to help me as a clinician at all. Now I'm just going to go through my life looking to see if people have tiny spots of blood next to their nipples. <laughs> So that I can judge them accordingly. I didn't need that. I'm already a mess. Please stop. <laughs> this is never something I needed to focus my mind on. <laughs> Stranger's nipple fetishes. No, I'm good. But that's a thing that I have to live with and now you do too. Like, if I ever considered it, like, I would come to that conclusion. But, like, I never needed to actually know that. <laughs> Nobody needs to know that. Nobody. You know? It's like how you can't think about how many people try to blow up the New York subway system every year. You'll just never get on it. Yeah. You just have to not think about how many people go home to a fucking can of strawberry-flavored lube and a nipple hook harness. <laughs> because you just can't function. You'll collapse. No. You can't focus on that. You need to live. You need to survive. You need to go through another day. You can't... Think about these things. <laughs> I just told that story, and now my dog is trying to gnaw her own foot off. <laughs> She's trying in to the escape. Background. escape. That's right, Bianca. I'm sorry. I know. The world is a harsh place, and you're a tiny, fragile chihuahua, but you do need all four feet. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be even more even more battered by the winds of the winds of this world if you are a three-legged brain damage chihuahua. <laughs> oh, we live we live at the top of too many stairs for you to be hopping. It's hard enough already. <laughs> My poor dog. Well, speaking of people who had it hard enough, we're going to jump into part two of the Barbara Bakeland murder situation. Is that a spoiler? Did we reveal that she dies? I think we revealed yes. that she dies. All right, we're good. I think we good. discussed that. She it's, dies. We just Spoiler haven't alert. Qu quite got into the details just yet. We haven't, and the details are delightful, and it has been a number of weeks since I looked at these notes, so I'm going to be just as shocked as you are. <laughs> because as soon as things go onto this Google Doc, they go straight out of my brain. Whoosh. So we're all we're all going on a fucking magic carpet ride. We're going to have an adventure. Yeah. Use Frizzle, take it away. I don't think this is fit for children. If <laughs> Am I the iguana? Oh my god, I I can't remember. I the last think I'm Carlos. You might be the bus itself. I'm not. You sure. Might be the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to be the bus. I've always that's... identified as a bus. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I mean, that's less confusing than your current gender identity, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I would accept you identifying as public transit before I will accept you as a woman. <laughs> 
that's fair. Weren't you recently, like, reading a list of feminine names and you just came across Jessica and you were like, mm, no. <laughs> I did. I texted you. It was like, I don't remember why, but it was like a list of, like, classically feminine names. And I was like, Jessica's not a feminine name. Jessica is a name that you give to, like, gender indistinguishable humanoids that do rude comedy on the internet. That's that's not a girl name. <laughs> that's what that means. <laughs> Be gone. <laughs> My, that is not my association with that. <laughs> You've ruined me for names. Yeah, I've just, I've just busted through the femininity of Jessica, and it, it's its own thing now. <laughs> it came out the other side, and we can never patch that hole. <laughs> I, I feel sorry for, like, the three women named Jessica Pijo. They're, they're gonna have it rough in about 20 years. <laughs> you are the Kool-Aid man of gender. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah! <laughs> Oh, God. All right. We need to get into murder because we have so many notes and this is just, it's going to be a lot. Um, But if I recall correctly, where we last left off, Tony had just attempted to murder his mother by shoving her into traffic. I think that's where we were at. Yes. Uh, We were at uh, his psychiatrist giving a warning to the elderly, the the, the elder Mrs. Bakeland, that Tony was going to kill her. And he would. So, uh, the murder went down on Friday, November 17th, 1972. And at 1pm on that Friday, Barbara left their flat to go have lunch with her friend Missy Harnden, because that's- that was a name that you could name your children. That was a thing you'd call a human being. So she left their flat to go have lunch with Missy Harnden and Missy's 17-year-old son Mishka, because nobody had sane names in this family. Absolutely no one. And Mishka and Missy lived at their own swanky flat in London. So, according to Mishka, the only topic Barbara was interested in discussing that afternoon was her son, Tony, and how he was wonderful and talented and he loved London. This is basically all Barbara talked about. She was the original helicopter parent that fucked her child. Um, um, a, the metaphor isn't perfect. <laughs> it's not. Um, it's sexually aggressive helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think about it too hard. Don't think about it. (laughs) Get down! (laughs) Oh, God, no. I'd prefer not to, Mommy. Um, Too disturbing. Too disturbing. So, Barbara left the the Harndons at around 3.30pm after a solid, you know, afternoon of talking up Tony, mentioning that Tony was going to cook supper for her that night, um, which is not ultimately what ended up happening. Well, best laid plans. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you plan dinner, you end up with death. Mm. It's easy to confuse the two. One's social calendar is always subject to change. We don't really have a solid grasp of the timeline because our only witness is Tony, who... Wasn't fine. (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of the original unreliable narrator here, but um, we do know that sometime that evening the two of them got into an argument, and their arguments had turned violent in the past, so as soon as they started fighting, their maid ran out of the house. Which is the reason we don't actually know what the fight between Tony and Barbara was about. Tony says that he can't remember. One theory that was put forward by a family friend was that as a child, Tony had had a beloved Pomeranian dog who had been rescued against incredible odds after it became lost in the mountains on a family trip. Um, After the dog died some years later, Tony kept its collar as a memento, as one does when one loses a pet. It can be traumatic. People keep mementos. Or when when one runs out of kink collars... And I has mean, a in an emergency. If you've got a neck the size of a Pomeranian, I say go for it. <laughs> <laughs> also, see a doctor, but you know, <laughs> you're probably go not for fine. It. 
I couldn't use Bianca's collar as an anklet. I don't think we're getting <laughs> up to anything strange anytime soon. <laughs> it's, it's just, like, slightly too big to be a ring, you know? Like, just... <laughs> if you saw it out of context, you'd wonder why I was walking a gerbil. <laughs> but one neighbor had heard a rumor, or reported a rumor sometime after the murder, that the fight between them started when Barbara threw the dog collar out of the window into Cadigan Square. Oh. Which, harsh. Yeah. It's a bit bit of an escalation. But Tony claims that what had happened was that he'd gotten a phone call earlier that day from an old family friend who lived in Wales who had called to ask if she could come over for a drink that evening. Tony told her that yes, she could come. And he said that during the phone call, the woman talked about an incident during his childhood where he had fallen down an elevator shaft, which Tony had no memory of. Which, I mean... Not entirely unsurprising, I guess, if you fell down an elevator shaft. I mean, I haven't. I, I have no memories of ever, any time that I've fallen down an elevator shaft, and that either means <laughs> that I've never fallen down an elevator shaft, or it's just been very traumatic. <laughs> he said that hearing about this incident really messed with his head and left him feeling out of sorts. Which I mean, I guess, yeah. If I thought that my parents were negligent enough to allow me to fall down an elevator shaft, I might be a little lost for words as well. I mean, my father nearly drowned me in a hotel swimming pool at the age of three, but I remember that vividly. It is my first memory seared right in there. But, <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, this wasn't an attempted feel aside. This was this was just my dad thinking three-year-olds can swim and then finding out that, oh no. No. <laughs> no, three-year-olds cannot swim. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> he, he, just, he just thought that was like your like, dad pulls. You just, you come, you, you spawn knowing how to, how to swim. It's just, it's right in there. No, and if you have a young child and you're not sure whether or not they can swim, maybe hucking them head first into the deep end of a hotel swimming pool is not the way that you test that. It's not the best way to find out. <laughs> Efficient, I'll grant you. You will know right away. <laughs> I mean, I got like eight years of guilt-inspired swimming lessons out of the deal. But... Not bad. <laughs> I also never found any confirmation if this actually happened or if the family friend was just thinking of a different rich incestuous heir that got tossed down an elevator shaft. Like, I don't actually know that this was ever corroborated. I mean, they probably all look alike. Again, incest. (laughs) (laughs) You've seen one incestuous spoiled aspiring poet. You've seen them all. And you've tossed them all down empty elevator shafts. Tony said that he thinks he and his mother got into an argument about him inviting the guest over for drinks too early, combined with him already feeling out of sorts about apparently being a long-lost elevator baby. What's that, lassie? Timmy fell down the penthouse elevator shaft again? Oh no. (laughs) Oh no. Leave him there, leave him there. The staff won't be in for another hour. (laughs) I just feel like somebody would have remembered this. (laughs) Really? I mean, if you are willing to fuck your own child to try to make him straight again, I feel like you're not going to try to shelter his feelings by not telling him about a childhood accident. Yeah, or at the very least, you feel like people would have confirmed after the fact whether or not he had, in fact, fallen down an elevator shaft. No, never came up. That's Um, a very interesting detail. (laughs) Yeah. Another missing detail is that he said that at one point his mother ran out of the room and began writing something on a scrap of paper. He couldn't recall what she had been writing, but he said that in the moment he knew exactly what it was and it infuriated him, that's a word that I can say as an adult, (laughs) that he ran to the kitchen to get a knife. Um, In prison, he would express in a letter that he wished he could remember what she'd been writing because, I mean, we're going to get into this right away, but he killed her for it. 
Barber was killed by a single stab wound to the chest. He managed to sever a major artery on his first go, and she basically died immediately. If you sever a heart artery, there's kind of nothing they can do. Yeah, that's... You're gonna very quickly sanguinate. Which is fancy for bleed the fuck out. Yeah, I hang out a lot with, like, people. Like, so, like, people honestly, who commit murder by arterial severation? What? Like, both my mother, I have per- I actually have a reason for this. This had better both be good. Both my mother and my sister, like, they're both EMRs. They're emergency medical responders. So every time I'm home for the holidays, my mother spends several hours just having me pretend to be a gunshot victim. <laughs> and just using me to do, like, practice emergency situations with. Like, over Christmas... I was, like, a gunshot victim, like, four times, a stabbing victim about, like, five or six times, and a heart attack victim, like, at least twice a day. (laughs) See, we just get drunk and heat up leftovers, but your Christmas sounds much more traumatic. Yeah, like, we we, we have a lot of trauma victim roleplay, my mom and I. You're gonna be an episode someday, you know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I really identify with Tony here. This is... (laughs) You identified less kinky, though. To be clear, with a man who killed his own mother with a single stab wound to the chest. I'm just saying a lot of my conversations with my mother revolve around stab wounds. Your mother listens to this podcast. Yeah, she quite enjoys it. She's a bigger fan of your episodes. Aww. She's more of a true crime person. Thanks, Mama Pijo. Please don't be alone with Jessica at Knives. <laughs> I feel like there's like a 75% chance your childhood bedroom locks from the outside. (laughs) Just just for everyone's safety. But Barbara, there was no sign of any kind of struggle or any defensive wounds on Barbara. She was just kind of found dead and bled out in her kitchen. She did have a bruise on the side of her head, but that was probably caused when she actually struck the floor going down. It either happened so quickly that she didn't register it, or she just kind of let it happen. Which is morbid. Creepy. Go hug your mom. Um, That's not a euphemism. No, don't don't have sex with your mother in an attempt to change your sexual orientation, please. Just go tell her that you love her. <laughs> <laughs> Call your mother. Um, don't stab her. <laughs> so, Tony was the one who called the ambulance for his mother, and when paramedics arrived, he was calmly sitting on his bed and ordering Chinese food over the phone. When questioned, he claimed that his grandmother, who was in her 80s and also was in New York City, which you'll recognize as not London, at the time of the murder. They're not exactly close. No, there's kind of, there's, there's this Hard ocean. Hard for one another. You just, I hate it when you accidentally swim across the Atlantic and end up in the wrong one, but. You know, wrong turn and suddenly. It happens to the best of us. Yeah, he claimed that his 80-something-year-old grandmother who lived in New York City was the one who'd stabbed his mother in London that day. Oh, boy. Yeah. The paramedics went to another apartment in the building, and they asked a neighbor who knew Tony to go talk to him on the phone to distract him while they waited for the police to come, which is just baffling as a strategy, but all right. Well, they've secured the scene. The only other non-paramedic there is very dead. That's true. Like, they want someone to distract him who isn't in the same room as him, because, like, they must know that something's wrong with him the moment they talk to him. Though, I mean, he's ordering Chinese food while his mother's dead on the floor, so that's a dead giveaway. Yeah, and, like, he doesn't seem to know where he is. And he was very calm, he was non-combative, he didn't resist, any of that. He was just just another Friday afternoon. 
when the neighbor phoned him, the neighbor didn't go up to the apartment. The neighbor just called him on the phone. But uh, the neighbor, Tony told the neighbor that he had just come back from a pleasant lunch with his grandmother, which again, she wasn't no. actually on the continent at the time. So <laughs> she's not even on the same tectonic plate. <laughs> yeah, he's he's come good and untethered. If you're ever not totally clear on whether you've just had lunch with someone who lives on a separate continent, it's, it's, you're not you're not good. The police managed to arrest him without handcuffs, although, to be fair, that's status quo in Britain. Britain only uses handcuffs if you fight the police, basically, because they are a civilized nation and they understand how to police. So he was calm and cooperative. He was arrested and transported to the Chelsea police station for the murder of his mother. It was when they got Tony to the police station for questioning, they already suspected that he might be a couple ducks shy of a flock. I don't know, whatever fucking metaphor you want to use. Kookalooch. He's Kookalooch. The first thing he said during questioning when they asked him, like, so, your mom's dead on the kitchen floor. What's up with that? He began with, it all started when I was three or five and I fell off my pogo stick. <laughs> what? <laughs> Bit of a non sequitur there, Tony. <laughs> 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 I don't think I don't think that's what the officer was was curious about. <laughs> I appreciate that you're trying to participate, but I think you're confused. <laughs> like again, my father threw me into a swimming pool like I was an incriminating cell phone. <laughs> I was three, but I have not spent the subsequent two decades of my life planning his downfall. <laughs> Yeah, we're like, good. Like, you, 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 like if, if, if we ever find you, you're not going to be saying, well, it all began. When my <laughs> father chucked me in a pool in Winnipeg. Like, no, I'm good. I have no immediate plans to commit patricide. You know, my schedule's open, but that's it's not in my immediate social calendar. It, it's, it's far down the to-do list. You're a busy person, I know. I've got a thesis to write. We'll revisit the dad issue later, but for now, I think I'm okay. <laughs> um... A psychiatric report from that night says that he was given paper and asked to write out an account of the murder, and we don't unfortunately have that, but we- Really? Cause, because I, I bet it's full on, this is my symbolic violence onto you. It, there's the, the inside joke that keeps on giving. I still have that paper somewhere, just in case I ever need emergency nightmares. Well, he, he didn't actually write anything, he just drew several pages of, quote, frankly psychotic content. That's so, too vague, historical people. I know. I want description. <laughs> At least characterize it for me. Stop depriving me of the trappings of an insane mind. After formally being charged with the murder, Tony was remanded to Her Majesty's prison at Brixton. He said in early letters that he started to feel, quote, clearer in the nog, which is British for better, um, while he was there. Friends who visited him, visited him, however, said that he didn't seem to know what had happened, and when he re when they visited, he would repeatedly ask them how his mother was doing, which no one really knew how to answer. Oh, honey. He didn't appear oh. to actually know that she had died. We'll actually come back to Tony's journey through the penal system, because it's fucking fascinating, but the rest of the aftermath is just as interesting. So actually dealing with Barbara's affairs was just as toxic and fucked up as everything else this family ever did. B because nobody's coming out of this podcast unscathed, and I hope to God all these people are actually dead by now. The first <laughs> words- Oh, we're in for one fucking hell of a lawsuit if they're not. 
But, um... Fight the... me, remaining Bakelands. <laughs> they may have been, like, you know, one of the wealthiest families in the world and probably have legal resources we can only dream of, but we have Schutzpah and a book. So, <laughs> it's not defamation if it's true. <laughs> Free speech, bitches. <laughs> Let's tempt some fate. Let's do it. Stare, <laughs> dance madly on the lip of that volcano. <laughs> Apparently the first words to come out of Barbara's mother's mouth when she heard that Barbara had been murdered were, quote, send me Barbara's jewels from London so that Sylvie doesn't wear them. Sylvie, of course, to recap, being Tony's ex-girlfriend who shacked up with his dad. Oh, priorities. Yeah. Wow, mm. Mrs. Daly. Nini, wow. uh, Nini, who was Barbara's mother, hated Sylvie openly, and she commented Nini. after the murder, I don't know how you get Nini from Mrs. Barbara's mom, but apparently you do. She often commented that her daughter would still be alive if, quote, that bitch hadn't stolen her husband. Sure. Blame the woman. Uh, it's always women's fault. It's just the most proximate vagina to an incident involving a man going wrong is always to blame. <laughs> it's like six degrees of who has two X chromosomes. Oh, yeah. A man could kill another man with a weapon given to him by a man who got it made by another man, and it's still a woman's fault. Always. Always. It's... God damn it, we just can't seem to stop making the men do things. <laughs> I, I, I feel a lot of blame here, and I, I'm... Men? We're sorry. We're not sorry. Every time I we're put not. an eyeliner, I'm like, guess what fucked up things I'm gonna make men do today? <laughs> you see these wings? <laughs> these are give me all of your money wings. Just hand over your fucking wallets. Yeah, this is a stick-up. Mama's got bills to pay and a push-up bra, and that's... There's only one way this is gonna go down. They're really, they're really helpless before our wiles. That's why bras cost $80, because you can use them to get everything you ever wanted. Yep, they're secretly a form of hypnosis. The return on them is just Dark incredible. Dark magic. <laughs> it's five Makeup cents. Makeup is basically witchcraft. Oh yeah, bras are five cents for the wire, thirty cents for the padding, and the other seventy nine dollars. It's just for the dark magic. Tongue of toad, eye of newton, all that. <laughs> now in lipstick form. I'd buy a lipstick called Eye of Newt. <laughs> I would. I'd wear it. What color is that? I am bizarrely enough actually wearing nail polish right now what and the, the color is called it's sort of like this swirly swirly pearlescent periwinkle and it's like the first time i've worn nail polish and i swear five years and the color is called unicornicopia i was gonna say uh, my first assumption when you said you were wearing nail polish is that you were wearing that stuff they put on kids nails to make their nails taste bad so they'll stop biting them that is why i'm wearing it yeah i know you didn't have to tell me. I I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it could have gone with the clear stuff, but, like, I was feeling fancy. I mean, unless you're doing dark magic with men's souls in the woods, I assume this is strictly for nail hygiene. <laughs> I just, I, you, when you get very close to the nail bed, it starts to hurt, but I can't make myself stop. It's kind of <laughs> like how, like, I have to wear, like, I sometimes have to wear gloves just to make myself, like, not bite myself. Like, I just, I'm basically like a dog with a cone. <laughs> For Christmas, you're getting a pair of oven mitts, and your roommate's getting a roll of duct tape to put them on you. 
That's it's Merry Christmas the to only both way of to you. Help me. <laughs> so Barbara left everything that she owned to Tony, except for an antique screen, which she left to her mother, and an 18th century clock she left to her mother-in-law. Both objects were located in her apartment in New York City. Um, since Tony was incapacitated, it fell on Brooks to take care of her affairs because, shockingly, Barbara did not have an in-case-my-son-kills-the-shit-out-of-me clause in her will, which, which she probably like should have. It does. It does a little bit. I mean, I don't even have a will, but when I do create one, it's just going to contain numerous clauses for all the people in my life who might try to off me. Yeah, like, it's just like, like, there should just be, like, as a standard part of any will and testament, if this motherfucker kills me, they get shit all. Right. I think right now, if I die, everything goes to my dad, but to be clear, if my dad shoves me in the Atlantic Ocean to collect my life insurance money, and, you know... Then it goes to John or James, obviously. Obviously. If my dad feels the need to be the sole name on all of my student loans that he co-signed for... If he decides to replicate the the incident that happened when you were three in the hotel room with the Atlantic Ocean, like, by all means. (laughs) (laughs) He can't have any of my debt. It all goes to my mom. (laughs) Like, from from my perspective, like, I list people in my will in order of, like, how likely they are to betray me. And I'm... I, th- I think that's an appropriate way of going about it. Just, like, gaming out, like, Batman-style who has who is, like, the greatest threat to your life and livelihood and what your lawyer should do in which circumstances, depending on the circumstances that surround your inevitable demise. That's true. Like, that, that only feels fair and, like, it genuinely clarifies things for the grieving loved ones you're leaving and, and or murderers that you're leaving behind. That's true. If I die in my sleep tonight, Bianca gets everything. Unless that little fucker eats me. In which case, she gets nothing. Can you can you imagine, like, Bianca, Bianca eating you after you die? Like, would she be, like, at, with the wet food, where, like, she just eats way too much and then she explodes? <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? If she paces herself, I could sustain her for years. Years! <laughs> You're gonna go off way before... Like, way before she makes it even through, like, half your face. I think she's got, like, a good 12 to 14 years of life expectancy left, and I could easily... If, easily. You know, if it gets cold enough in your apartment after your death. Exactly. With proper refrigeration, I can carry her well past that. You're basically, a, like, a life insurance policy for your dog in of yourself. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> If, you know, like, if she eats your face, she's not even gonna need the money. <laughs> I mean, if she's not full from eating her own foot. <laughs> Got a little tiny stomach. So small. <laughs> she is, however, undoubtedly the cutest rat I've ever seen. We were actually at Central Park the other day, in which my genius dog chased a turtle straight into the Harlem Mirror. Which is surrounded in signs telling you not to go in the water because of algal blooms, so my dog is probably going to grow a fifth eye any time now. <laughs> the, uh, the first two I can let go, but a fifth is absolutely outrageous. But as we were, we were hanging out on the steps down by the edge of the lake, this, like, gigantic rat comes out of the bush and, like, eagerly runs towards her. And then, like, when it gets close enough, it just sort of stops, like, seems to realize its mistake, and then just turns around and heads back from whence it came. So like, friend. Oh no! Right, I was like, I think, I think this is like 
my dog nearly got romanced by a rat who's now, you know, nursing his romantic wounds in somewhere in the Central Park bushes. This just isn't a really embarrassed rat being like, oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> See, that, that reminds me of the one and only time I went to a gay club, and like, I swear I had three different men just like get, like, within ten feet of me with an, uh, like, oh, hey there expression, and then go, oh, no, and then, like, just, just swishly, like, curve away. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> it's like when you bring an attractive girl home from the bar, and then you get her home, and you get her clothes off, and you realize that she's a haunted store mannequin. <laughs> it's that kind of deal. Not even the right species. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> You know, you know, like, you, you're making eyes at a guy across the bar, you know, like, you saunter up to him, and then you just walk into your own reflection. Oops, it's a mirror. <laughs> oh, yes, I was wondering why he was five foot two and wearing heavy lipstick. <laughs> Mystery fucking solved. Rats don't have good eyesight, do they? <laughs> they do not, no. And apparently they're very lonely. Oh, so lonely. I know. Yeah, that that poor rat got chihuahua zoned. <laughs> <laughs> So shut up, all you men complaining about the friend zone. You've never had your romantic object be the wrong species. Yeah, like you've never, you never just like tried to try to make out with a girl. It turns out she's a she's a she's like a chocolate lab in a wig. Okay, <laughs> get over it. <laughs> if that does happen to you, though, I fully support you in joining your toxic internet community to bitch about it. That's absolutely that those is goddamn appropriate moment. Chocolate labs running around in wigs. Who yeah. the fuck do they think they are? <laughs> All these bitches won't even date me. <laughs> oh man, I love Poe's Law. Um, <laughs> so Brooks was in charge of taking care of Barbara's affairs, and he wanted absolutely no part of this. The only thing that he kept of Barbara's as a memento, the only thing, he didn't take anything of hers to, to remember her by, he didn't take anything that was important to her. None of her personal effects. The only thing that he kept was a set of cassette tapes that the police told him might be embarrassing for the family if they ever got out. Because money will buy you absolutely everything. Including police protection. Mm. The cassettes... Fun stuff. What the cassettes were was that they were recordings of an autobiographical novel that Barbara was writing, which included graphic scenes of incest with her own son. Oh. Yeah. And, because there's... We're going straight down the rabbit hole and there's no bottom in sight. The only cassette player Brooks owned was in his car, so he used to make Sylvie drive around aimlessly with him for hours as he listened to those tapes over and over and over again. Oh! Just driving around with your wife, to, who is, to be clear, your son's ex-girlfriend, while you listen to tapes of your ex-wife vividly describing nailing her son. It's, it's a lot. Oh, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. You know. See, see, and like, I was reading the Wikipedia page for this. And like, at one point it said like, oh yeah, Barbara Daly Bakeland is alleged to have had sexual relationship with her son. And I'm like, what do you mean is, she alleged it. <laughs> She's the one who alleged it. And she told numerous people that this she had told happened. everybody. He also hinted that this had happened. Again, like, she might have been exaggerating. We don't, but it's. It's kind of, it's a very specific thing to bring up all the time. It's weird to lie to this many people about this. And if you're going to lie about something, like, maybe don't lie about committing incest. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, it's weird to lie and pretend that you sexually abused your son. That's a weird thing to lie about if you didn't actually do it. Right, like, you know... On rap songs, they brag about having money and sleeping with women, but they're very rarely like, and then I committed tax fraud. Like, you just don't... There's just certain things you just don't boast about. Yeah, like... Child abuse. things that, like, <laughs> could get you arrested or the very least socially excluded with good reason. Right? Eventually, these tapes drove Sylvie so incredibly insane that she begged Brooks to just use fucking headphones so she wouldn't have to listen to them anymore. Yeah, cause holy shit, it's that's upsetting. Like, and like, I like that he wasn't. He did. He didn't even like drive around just aimlessly listening to them. Him fucking self. No, or he just fucking parked the car. Because nobody in the Bakeland family could just go down with their own ship. Everybody no, else had to die had to too. Drag everybody with them. We're all going down, fuckers. Like he's just like a captain goes down with with their ship, and he and she's just like, just get off the boat. <laughs> yeah, there's like, there's enough room on the door for everybody. We can all float <laughs> away from this fucking wreckage. But nope. We all have to drown. We all have to drown in this toxicity together. So, other than these tapes, though, which Brooks listened to obsessively, he didn't want anything to do with her shit. So it was largely friends and neighbors who helped deal with all of Barbara's stuff in London and New York. A London neighbor who was looking after Barbara's cat right after the murder asked Brooks if he would like the cat, and Brooks told her to put it down. The neighbor was like, well, can I, can I rehome the cat? And he said yes. So apparently the cat lived a good life. So somebody got out of this okay. Nobody else did, to be clear. Just the cat. How is that your first go-to? Just kill it. Like, it's a healthy cat. Like, like, at least say, like, oh, like, find it a new home if you can't, but, like, it's okay if you put it down. Like, don't just go, like, oh, yeah, just kill it. Just kill it. Like, what? It meant something to your, like, dead ex-wife. Also, like, it's a living being. Brooks also didn't bother to claim Barbara's body until three weeks after her death. Which, I mean, by that point, they had no choice but to cremate her. They they won't let you hold an open casket funeral once someone starts to smell. There's only so much that postmortem makeup can do. How can you be this contemptuous of a woman who is dead? Right, like, okay, she was shitty to you in life, I understand, but like, sh- sh- you win. Yeah, you won, Okay. She's gone now. <laughs> she's, she's you, you you get to continue to be what alive. What point are you proving? <laughs> you were not shuffled off this mortal coil by your own child. So, props to you. Memorial services for Barbara were held in London and New York City, but they were small and not advertised. So most of Barbara's friends didn't find out about the memorial until after it already happened. Those who attended said that the services were awful. They were impersonal. They didn't really seem to have much to do with Barbara. They weren't what she would have wanted. Some of Barbara's friends received articles of her pricey designer clothing after her death, and to show you how little anyone gave a shit in sorting out her possessions, one friend who was on vacation in Haiti received a Chanel dress, and when she opened the dress, there were bloodstains all down the back because it turns out that she'd been mailed the dress Barbara died in. Oh! To her credit, she decided that the dress was probably haunted, so it's currently buried out behind a hotel somewhere in Haiti. <laughs> she literally just took it out back with a shovel and was like, "Nope." Wow. No demon dress. See, I just, I just like the fact that the person who like packed, because like 
this this can't like someone had to have packed this dress into the box. Oh yeah. So either they just didn't give a shit, or they like, or just like somebody was just like, "Hello, servant, take this bloody dress and mail it mail it to so and so." And they're just like, you know what, rich people are weird. Sure. Yeah, they're like, you better fucking tip me. <laughs> Fuck sakes. <laughs> Crusty blood covered dresses are totally in this season. You have never met somebody who is truly just done. Who just does not give a shit anymore until you've met a poor person who works for rich people. (laughs) They're dead inside and out. You know, like, there's only so long you can go with just, like, bored, eccentric rich people who treat you like furniture and having to deal with their nonsense before you just don't care. <laughs> While simultaneously knowing that they are worth more money than you ever will be and the universe is just a cesspool of cosmic injustice. It just takes that that spark behind your eyes and it just stomps it out. Yeah, like, like if someone mailed me a blood-covered dress, I don't know what I'd do, but, like, my first instinct would not be to, like, pose in it in front of the mirror. It just feels like a threat. Yeah, like, it just, it feels implicitly, like, whether it's intended or not, like, a really, really grotesque version of a chain letter telling you that, like, a little girl, like, is gonna, like, with bleeding eyes is gonna be, like, standing at the foot of your bed in three days. It's like, do you have to now mail ten other people blood-strained dresses? I don't know. (laughs) Right, like, if somebody leaves a severed horse head in your bed, you don't automatically assume, like, oh, how thoughtful, they know that I'm totally into horse racing. Mm, Aw, that's cute. I love glue. I I would take pretty much any unidentified package turning up in the mail for me as a threat. Blood or no blood. Anyone personally recognizing that they know where I live, I find extremely distasteful. (laughs) That's why I live in a bunker, under the (laughs) ground, in the woods, with enough canned goods to get me through the apocalypse. (laughs) It's the only way to feel truly safe. (laughs) But no, it's just like, it's just like, foul demon drift, get thee behind me. Like, (laughs) I I, I fully, like, like, I'm like pretty anti-superstition, but I fully respect somebody just burying that. Oh, that shit's haunted. That that feels like something the police should still have. That's what I thought as well. It is actually a murder investigation, but what do I know? It feels like they should have held on to that slightly longer. Before they start mailing murder evidence to different countries? No, you know. Yeah. That's yeah. that's week three kind of stuff. Probably the most alarming part of the aftermath, though, was that nobody was surprised this had happened. The way that Savage Grace is written, the book that I took all of this information from, it's filled with testimonies from various friends, family members, and people who knew the family. The, the authors themselves don't actually have much to say in the book. They're mostly just reporting other people's testimonies verbatim to give you an idea of what happened. Pretty much nobody that they talked to was even the least bit surprised this had happened. So Barbara had asked one of her female friends to come and stay with Tony at their London flat over the summer that she had expected to be alive for. Because this woman had always been sort of a grandmother figure to Tony, and he found her presence calming. The woman initially agreed, but a few days before the murder, her daughter called her from London and advised her against going because it was well-known things in the Backland house were not fine. At all. Goody. Some people actually laughed when they heard the news because they had kind of been expecting it all along and they just didn't know how else to react. It's one of those things. I think everyone has in their life, probably not everyone, but like I have often had like people in my life where I'm just like, if anyone was gonna commit a mass shooting, probably be you. Ah yes, that person is my boyfriend. Always. 
Always, it, it, always. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter who I'm dating, what time. That is whoever I'm dating. That's... Yeah, because, like, you always just date the worst person around. Ah, uh, an underweight social reject in a trench coat? Oh, Absolutely. Baby. <laughs> I am ex- Talk to me about how you're misunderstood. Oops. I am exclusively attracted to people on government watch lists. <laughs> about like that when people are always like why wouldn't you report them it's just like well i don't think they actually have the guts to do it i just wouldn't be surprised if they did (laughs) it's like one of those problems it's just like the base rate of people who commit mass shootings is very very low as is the base rate of people who actually stab their mother but like you always know like if one of your friends was going to stab their mom you know who it would be (laughs) oh and i'm tempting fate as hard as i fucking can <laughs> you know how on true crime documentaries they interview, you know, families, neighbors, sometimes their partner, and it's like, oh god, I just had no idea they were capable of this. You know, he was such a nice guy. He invited us over for barbecue. Like, he was so great. No, no, no. Someday I'm going to be on 48 hours and I'll be like, oh yeah, I knew this was fucking coming. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but man, was I into it. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. It just. It... It made me tingle in all the right ways. I, a lot of people are dead, but I did enjoy it. <laughs> you say that he threw a hitchhiker off a bridge. Well, sounds like him. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're gonna need to excuse me. I'm too hot and bothered to continue this interview. Yeah, like uh, I thought. I thought. I thought there was nothing left in the relationship for me. Clearly, I was wrong about him. See, normally when a woman tells people that she never wants to have children, they try to change her mind. But when I say that to people, they're like, yeah, that's that's probably good. the best. Yeah, that's that's a good thing. It's not your genes we're questioning, but, well. We don't, even, even when I'm single, they're like, you know, you don't have a partner right now, but whoever you pick next, no. Odds aren't good. Odds aren't, are, the odds are not, are not in your favor. That's why I got a dog instead. She's murdered very few people, to my knowledge. Even even if she feels the urge, she doesn't have the thumbs with which to strangle anybody. She doesn't have the jaw strength. I mean, <laughs> she's had one of those, you know those dentist sticks that you give a dog because they won't let you brush their teeth without going full feral? Um, she's had the same one for three and a half months. And I mean, in fairness... She, she's making it through it day by day. She's. I bought her two, and the our, my new roommate's... Um, Pitbull lab cross ate one in 10 minutes. <laughs> She'd had it for three months and he just basically picked it up and ate it like it was a fucking Slim Jim. You were overly <laughs> ambitious in your in, in your plans for your dog's future dental health. She she spent the first two months just licking it. Now that she's gotten all that delicious store flavor off, she's finally started chewing it, but we're in for the long haul here. <laughs> I may have to like re-gift it to my next chihuahua. <laughs> Just hand me down dental bones. <laughs> Your predecessor worked on this for 12 years. Carry that torch. <laughs> my gift to you, my son. <laughs> Generations of your kind have made their way to this pilgrimage. <laughs> the Mount Olympus of dog chews. <laughs> Iliad and the Odyssey contained in dog dental aids. Awesome. But after the murder... Many people commented that it was difficult to tell who had killed who, because again, spoiler alert, Tony's not coming out of this alive either. Just, we'll get back to him. One friend, Brooks, actually, Brooks was the one who commented that Barbara was a born fighter and she died in battle. Which is morbid. No. No. 
No, she literally had no defensive wounds. She she died in an instance of domestic violence against women. But you know, yeah, she died as she lived, dramatically and in a really fucked up manner. At the whims of mentally ill and manipulative men in her life. Yep. Um, a friend said, "When I thought about it, what it seemed to me that what happened was the most ordinary termination of this wildlife, which is the most polite way that you can say she had it coming." This is just sort of the inevitable outcome of the life that Barbara Daly Bakeland lived. Yeah, that's a very flowery way of making that shrug emoticon with your words. <laughs> this is this is this is like a complex way of saying yup. Yep. There was also some <laughs> scandal around Brooks's personal life following the murder. So Brooks and Sylvie got married two months after Barbara's death because Sylvie was apparently embarrassed of living in sin and threatened to leave if he didn't make an honest woman out of her. I don't know how honest of a woman you can make somebody after they fuck father and son in the same year, but, you, you know, you can try. Honest-ish. A white lie. Many people accuse Sylvie of rushing Brooks into marriage for his money, although personally there's no amount of money I think you could pay anybody to marry into this clusterfuck of a family. I would l rather live under a bridge. Sylvie said, this is grotesque. When she died, it was the most horrible moment of my life because I understood that certain events will not allow you to live, even to exist. After I married Brooks, I saw that instead of having a husband, I had a widower on my hands. Everyone in this story is just so incredibly poetic. Sylvie realized that she was still going to have to stand in Barbara's shadow, even after Barbara was too dead to continue casting one. Like, Sylvie, in a lot of ways, is sort of an innocent bystander in this story. Where, Nobody like, would purposely get involved in this. Nobody would want this. Nobody wants this. You know, she's young, she's naive, and, like, she just gets way too, like, in too deep, way too fast with just a bunch of toxic nutcases. She does. She said, people say I caught the Bakelands. The Bakelands do their own catching very easily, believe me. <laughs> fair. Fair, Sylvie. Uh, shortly after their wedding, a famous artist friend named Addie Herter, whose paintings are actually really cool, you should look her up. She died in 2009, but her stuff's still around. Because, again, I wasn't gonna do this story unless absolutely everybody involved in it was very, very dead. Um, <laughs> it's the only way to be safe. She ran into Brooks and his new wife at a cafe where Brooks commented, That terrible boy, he killed that wonderful woman. Addie was aghast at how casual he seemed and was horrified when Brooks told Sylvie that they owned two of her paintings, since it had been Barbara who purchased those paintings. So apparently he kept the paintings. And the incest tapes. You know. Okay. Just just the mementos everyone hangs on to after their- Yes, that wonderful woman, the one you utterly disrespected before and after her death. And that horrible boy, like, the child you spawned and then emotionally abused and neglected. Yeah, pretty much. Taking absolutely no responsibility for this. Oh, that's that's a running theme with Brooks. So there was another incident after the marriage, again, where Brooks apparently strolled into the home of one of Barbara's friends unannounced as he was passing by and declared that Tony had killed the woman he loved. Those friends, who were the novelist James Jones, who again, you can look up, he's actually quite famous, he was the one who had assisted Barbara during the suicide attempt and had gotten the flippant response from Brooks that, like, call me if she dies. So James and his wife Gloria were unimpressed with the way Brooks had been acting since her death and they asked him to leave. Yeah. Because, like, they're her friends, buddy. How do you just so easily forget 
what you've done in front of them. Well, it's, you know, when you phone somebody to say, hey, your wife just attempted suicide, and they respond with, eh, let me know if she dies, they don't, you're not gonna be too impressed when they start throwing themselves on the funeral pyre. At best, you may not remove them from your Christmas card list. But, like, this is just sort of rank hypocrisy. This is just, like, this. it's just this performative grief that is really quite grotesque to people who must honestly be grieving her. People were more genuinely sad about the death of Michael Jackson, a celebrity that they'd never met, than he was about his wife dying. People are, people are more upset about any celebrity death than they are about... Than, than Brooks was upset about Barbara. But boy, is he into acting upset. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I too, commit casual home invasions to let people know how sad I am. So in the months that Tony was in prison at Brixton, his network of powerful and influential friends all rallied around him. This is, again, this is what money will buy you. Endless sympathy and a forever childhood. You never, ever have to take responsibility for anything that you do. Nobody blamed him for the murder, including friends of Barbara's, and they instead sent him delicately worded letters offering condolences on, quote, the tragedy. Like, on the one hand, like, I kind of get it, like, this does feel like sort of, like, an accident of, like, mental illness and trauma. On the other hand, it's like, she's still very dead. Yeah, it's, it's... It's perhaps strange how quickly they rallied around him. Because, yeah, he, he did have a horrific upbringing and a complicated relationship, and he was, I mean, deeply mentally ill and was offered help only, you know, at the 11th hour when it was too late. But it was weird to the extent to which people went out of their way to not talk about what had happened. As if Barbara had, like, slipped and fallen onto the knife. There's, like, a bit of a gap between being sympathetic to him and just erasing the fact that he killed her. Yeah, many of them knew how difficult Barbara was to get along with and how complicated the relationship between mother and son had been. And they assured Tony in their letters and during their visits that nobody blamed him. The only person who didn't rally behind Tony was his own father. Brooks rarely contacted Tony after the murder and had to be cajoled into visiting him in prison. Brooks said of Barbara, quote, She had a kind of greatness, no, a real greatness of heart, and her murder was illustrative not of her, but of that crapule her son. That she had partly made him into a crapule is also true. But he was also my son, and I had fought against that in him all his life and failed. I would give anything to have been able to help him. I never could. Even as a small child, he was aberrant. Aberrant. However you want to say it. The word crapule is a French word meaning scoundrel, so, you know... <laughs> That quote goes on, but it, it's incredibly long, and it is deeply homophobic, so I will spare you, but... Oh boy. It's amazing how he he finally finds it in himself to speak well of his dead wife, and it's only to slander his yet-living, deeply unwell son. Oh, Barbara became the love of his life after she was murdered. He never had a, another bad thing to say about her after she, you know, died. But it's also incredible how, when he's talking about the role that he played in this, it has nothing to do with the fact that he was homophobic or that he refused to get his son any kind of mental help for years. No. Even it was obvious that their son had pr mental problems. And she, he was the main weight against get, getting Tony help. He was the only weight. He believed that psychology was immoral. 
Which, I mean, I'm immoral, but my field is fine. Fuck off. <laughs> um, the, the only thing he's willing, the only blame he's willing to assign himself is that I was a good parent, but I wasn't good enough. It, he's making it all about him, and he's making it all about, like, how, like, he struggled and failed in the frailty of this mortal coil. It's it's basically the Luke Skywalker-Kylo Ren situation all over again. Except Tony didn't have a lightsaber and also was a bit less of a flailing, screeching man-child. Also, I'm not nearly as attracted to Tony. True. He's not nearly brooding enough. He's more just, like, sad and, and, and lonely and, like, deeply hurt. Tall, dark, and emo? That's all I want in this life. All about it. If you're attractive enough and sad enough, you can murder any number of children and women will still be attracted to you. That is true. That's what I've learned. That's what I've learned. Send me a message, I'll give you my number. Um... <laughs> Tony's aunt, Elizabeth Bakelin, went to visit him in prison, and at the end of the visit, he said probably the creepiest thing he could have said in that situation, which was, I love you, Aunt Liz. You remind me of mummy. She took that as a death threat, and so at the advice of her lawyer, she ceased all contact with him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's... You remind me of my mother, who I stabbed during a psychotic break. Probably should have, probably should have thought that one through. Oh, boy. With help, though, and with medication, Tony eventually did come to understand that he had killed his mother, and he talked about how he often had dreams of her where she came to him and reassured him that she wasn't angry. Because even in his dreams, it's not his fault. So, on June 6, 1973, Tony was taken to the Central Criminal Court, which British people refer to as Old Bailey, named after the street that the building's on. I don't know if that's as creative as they get, I guess. Um, where he finally stood trial for the murder of his mother. He was tried by a high court judge, which is unusual. They typically only reside over the most serious cases of murder or treason. Tony was better at the trial, but he was still, like, very much not fine. Partway through, Tony randomly announced to the room at large that I would rather have buggered a prosecutor than killed a peacock in paradise. What does that mean? Yeah, I, I... Like, I understand all of those words, but not in that order. Yeah, individually, those are words, and they are in an order, but I don't... I stared at that quote for a very long time, and I have absolutely... Is this a metaphor? I, it's not a quote. Like, if you Google that with quotes around it, all you get is digital copies of Savage Grace. I don't know what it means. I think... And yet I somehow agree. It's evocative. I think... I think, this is a theory that I came up with late at night after way too many hours of staring at this book. I think it might be a vague reference to Oscar Wilde, who was tried for gross indecency in the exact same court. Oscar Wilde's famous trial went down at Old Bailey. I think he might be trying to say that he would prefer to have appeared before the court as Oscar Wilde did, as a brilliant writer accused of buggery, rather than stand trial for the murder of his mother, who he romanticizes as a peacock in paradise. And even as I'm saying it, it sounds like something a crazy person came up with while stoned at four in the morning, because that might be what this is. Oscar Wilde was never accused of having sex with any kind of lawyer. So... No. It's possible that this is just absolute nonsense. We'll never know. If you have a theory about what the fuck that means, please send it to me so that I can sleep again. (laughs) I just need closure. Because right now I'm just like... I'm doing a fucking mental spin cycle of this, and I would very much like to empty that washing machine. Um, (laughs) So, Tony's lawyer tried to get Tony immediately deported to America, which is not what ended up happening. On the recommendation of psychiatrists, Tony was found guilty of manslaughter under diminished responsibility because of mental illness, and he was sentenced to spend an indefinite sentence, quote, 
at her majesty's pleasure, which I was fucking startled to realize that the queen was alive for all this, but the queen has been alive a very long time since Pangea broke apart. Um, <laughs> so she is forever. She is eternal. Queen Lizzie. Queen Lizzie today. Queen Lizzie tomorrow. The queens do not die. She doesn't. She, she'll be here to find out how the world ends. Just as she was here to find out how it began. <laughs> but uh, he was sentenced to stay at the infamous Broadmoor Hospital, which is where all of Britain's high-ranking and craziest people have been incarcerated. It's a it's a forensic hospital. It is a hospital. It's not a prison. But um, he was he was sentenced to stay there before being deported. So Broadmoor Hospital is a maximum security psychiatric hospital, which is currently male only, but it was co-ed for most of its history. And it gets mm. pretty much all of its patients from the criminal justice system. Although not everybody at Broadmoor Hospital is a forensic patient. You can just end up there without committing a crime. Many of Britain's famous criminals, as I mentioned, have stayed here. Anthony Bakelin is actually on their list of most notable inmates, along with William Chester Minor, Ronnie Cray, David Copeland, and Christiana Edmonds. Which are names that will mean wow. something to you if you are British. <laughs> I, I, I actually know a lot of those names. Because your mother read you true crime stories instead of Goodnight Moon when you were a child. <laughs> uh, she actually used to, she used to sing me um, this song from the Muppets uh, that was, Sweetums, lay your ugly head down upon your wretched bed. Close your eyes and go to sleep. Yeah, that's good. That makes sense, because while the rest of us were getting Hop on Pop, you were getting A Stranger Beside Me. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. good. No, like, that's that's a lot of, like, that's a lot of, like, true crime, classic, like, well-known British criminals. We could do episodes on literally any of those people. Yeah, but oh, absolutely. There's a lot there. For that reason, Broadmoor is called the Asylum of Last Resort. Antony was also told that upon release, he was not to, quote, associate with people worse than himself. Which, like, it's kind of a low bar, in my opinion. He's a murderer. A little bit. You could, there's not a lot of people worse than himself around. He committed literal matricide. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's hard, it's hard to outdo, like, literally killing your own mom. There's, like, an entire Greek play about it. <laughs> it's, like, one of those classic crimes. Yeah, I would argue that, like... You know, you could hang out with drug kingpins, forgers, people who've committed assault. You can hang out with rapists. You know, there's not a lot that's off limits to you. Basically, you have to avoid child murderers. That's and serial killers. That's that's who's off limits for you now. That's it. Watching you, young man. <laughs> Tony began his stay at Broadmoor in June of 1973, and in the beginning, he was apparently so unwell that he had to be assisted in getting dressed and using the bathroom. He showed immense remorse for what he had done and expressed anguish that, quote, a few moments of frenzy had changed his life. The doctor there found him to be undisciplined in a way that, quote, and I'm, I'm not fucking rat bagging on him, this is a real quote, that too much money will often create. <laughs> He's the original affluenza. I diagnose you with being a rich idiot. <laughs> He's basically my ex with more murder and fewer microwave fires. Probably because he, I don't know if he had that many microwaves. <laughs> it's a lack of opportunity. The, mm. the doctor also felt that Tony had delusions of grandeur when he constantly described himself as a great painter and boasted often about his connection to his famous great-grandfather. 
Tony's relationship with his father continued to be complicated and weird, and he wrote his father a series of alternating harsh and affectionate letters while at Broadmoor. A psychological report done on Tony while at Broadmoor described his father, Brooks, as, quote, a brilliant wealthy man who has never actually done any productive work, charming but capable of no warmth. His mother was described as an hysterical, narcissistic, and impulsive woman quite incapable of giving a child the minimum of maternal security. They said that Tony suffered marked deprivation of love from both parents, and he was exposed to excessive intellectual stimulation beyond his capacity to absorb. Because the only reason any of us actually go into psychology is because we want to throw shade and have a judge take it seriously. That is some hot tea. <laughs> we all just go into that this is profession. Amazing. Anyone who tells you that they became a psychologist to help people is lying. You're here to be able to judge people. It's all about the hot gas. We're here, we're here to fucking rubberneck in an official capacity. That's it. <laughs> I, I just, you know, I, I really like when like well-educated doctors get in on the get in on slamming people because it's just the combination of authority and specificity <laughs> with which they make their judgments. I read an actual psych report that came from an actual mental professional once that said, "quote." Well, not quote because it's been a couple of years, but it basically said that it was possible. Paraphrase. Par to paraphrase. This actual report from an actual mental health professional stipulated that the client was probably aggressive and had issues with behavioral control because he was insecure about his extremely tiny penis. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to know how you know that. I, I mean, I haven't read the DSM cover and yet to cover. I am so entertained. But I feel like that's not in there. I don't know. <laughs> I, I will return to the study, I, I guess. I don't remember this bit of the DSM. I'm not quite done my master's yet. Maybe that's coming up any time now. They, they get to it, like, very late, but it's important. It's, like, the really <laughs> high-level stuff. <laughs> it's, it's complex. Um, so Brooks re rejected this assessment of his son and decided that his son was a play of good and evil and saw him as an example of the failings of his entire generation. He visited Tony at Broadmoor and told staff that he was not prepared to take his son out of the hospital and did not want him discharged anytime soon. Which, I mean, is probably the smartest thing he said so far. Yeah, I can't really blame him too much for that one. It's like one of those stop clock being right tw twice a day kind of things. Yeah. You're correct, but I think all the reasons by which you came to this conclusion are probably flawed and specious. Yeah, you just hate your kid. You always have. Like, I, I don't have, like, enough, like, belief in the good faith of this man to think that, like, he actually just cares about his son. No. Life at Broadmoor was harsh for Tony. He was placed in a 60-man dormitory where patients slept in iron beds inches apart from one another like they're in an old-timey fucking orphanage. And they had only a locker provided. Everything else had to come from the generosity of family and friends. It's like prison with no commissary and no jobs. The men were locked into the dorms at night, and blue lights kept the room permanently illuminated all night. Using the bathroom during the night was not allowed, and patients had to resort to using plastic chamber pots kept under the beds. There was no Lovely. privacy, and usually no toilet paper. And I mean, I'm not fully licensed yet, but I feel like that's not a great way to make somebody's mental health get better. No, it's not exactly the best environment for a fragile person. Oh, you're mentally ill and struggling? Here, shit in this bucket in front of 59 other people. <laughs> You'll be better in no time. <laughs> the path to recovery is hard. Now get naked in front of 60 strangers. I mean, I get that that's probably better for your mental health than huffing actual paint in an alleyway, but I mean... 
That's a low bar to clear. Tony wrote to a friend during this time that, I don't understand why, but I feel a murderous hatred toward my fellow man. I feel that they are holding me down. I don't understand the reason for this feeling, as I have always been treated with the greatest kindness. The other thing that complicated Tony's stay was that there was only four psychiatrists available, and they each worked one day a week for 750 patients. That doesn't feel like enough. Like, I don't, like, really understand the day-to-day logistics of running a psychiatric hospital, but that feels insufficient. Probably more. Probably more. Tony was kept heavily sedated, and he saw a psychiatrist once a month. I see a psychiatrist more often, and I've never stabbed anybody. That's that's why you see the psychiatrist. We're trying to keep it that way. Yeah, like, really, like, it, it helps. It It does help. I mean, the last thing he put me on made me sweat constantly, and one of my pupils was way bigger than the other, but, like, I appreciate the attempt. <laughs> but if your hands are super sweaty, you can't hold a knife. Yeah. It's like, genius. And people's necks, super slippery. <laughs> it's good that you know that. That's it's like, whip, whip, whip. You know, the larynx, it just moves around. Like trying to catch a fish with your bare hands. Except in this case, the fish is a lifetime in federal prison. <laughs> <laughs> so originally Tony's lawyer had hoped that Tony would only be in Broadmoor for a short time, but Tony was there for seven years until July of 1980. Even for Broadmoor, that's a long stay. The average patient is only there for six years, and the hospital itself notes that this is seriously skewed by a handful of people who were there for more than 30 years. Over the years, some of Tony's powerful and influential friends had been working to pull strings for his release, and it was in 1980 that they finally succeeded. Tony was released due to their influence alone, and not because he had recovered, because, like, he hadn't. Like, not even a little bit. He has not. He's not fine. He's not fine. It's weird, but seven years of heavy sedation and bucket shitting didn't really fix the problem. So Brooks, who had separated from Sylvie at this point, absolutely did not want his son released from Broadmoor at all. Full stop. Bar none. There were three options for Tony's release, and Brooks thought all of them were absurd and unthinkable. Tony was going to be deported back to the United States because he was not a British uh, citizen and never was. And he had to either be released into the custody of someone who could ensure that he got private medical treatment, placed in a state hospital, or transferred to Payne Whitney, which was a fancy mental hospital run by Cornell Medical School that used to be here on the Upper East Side. Marilyn Monroe actually once stayed there. Um, the original, that hospital was torn down in the 90s, but other mental institutions called Payne Whitney that are run by Cornell still actually exist in Manhattan and Westchester County. Fun history, history note. Brooks pretty much killed the Payne Whitney option, though, because he publicly referred to the hospital as Payne Whitless, which they didn't think was funny. Brooks also claimed that private medical care was off the table, and I quote, If for no other reason than that they were beyond my means, so far beyond as to be preposterous. So to be clear, that is Brooks, son of one of the wealthiest men alive, who lived a life of constant leisure and basically doing everything but setting money on fire, claiming that he cannot afford his son's medical care. Really? Yeah. I, I, Beyond your means. Doubt. Just, he, you don't have to send him to the most expensive hospital in existence, just a nice hospital. <laughs> also, it's free to just admit that you hate him. That's a very cheap option. Yeah. Just you, No one will... Charge. They won't like you, but no one will charge you for that. You can just say, nah, I don't feel like it. It's And, like, this is basically what you are saying anyway. It's just, like, at least then we would give you props for being honest. We can read between those lines. Like, I think I think there's a good, you know, like, old home, home you know, country saying about this, which is, like, 
don't piss on my face and tell me it's raining. I heard that one. My mother's full of quaint sayings like that, normally involving bodily fluids. <laughs> Brings back those sweet summer memories of childhood. Brooks said of his son's stay at Broadmoor, a gentleness, a kindness, a compassion, and a civilized concern by civilized people for the cruelly wounded or fatally malborn within its walls are the first thing that strike a foreign visitor. And Tony was happy there, as long as the tiger slept. And the tiger did sleep until Maguire, under pressure, I believe, from higher-ups to send all the foreigners back to their own countries, began to take away the drugs that made the tiger sleep. And the tiger awoke. So to be clear, that is Brooks saying that his first impression of a notorious maximum security forensic hospital was that it was a kind and gentle place. Wow. Like, it's just like one of those, like, motivated reasoning, like... Either either you're lying to me or you're lying to yourself sort of things. Like Broadmoor is notorious. Yeah, it's not it's not Club Med. It's you know, it's one step up from the abandoned hospital in Silent Hill. Yeah, like this is like one flew over the cuckoo's nest type shit. Yeah, if you want to get an idea of what Broadmoor is like, you can pop in like any Arkham Asylum game and just kinda go nuts. But Brooks would basically have been content to see his son confined to Broadmoor and heavily sedated for the rest of his life, which I feel like is not an unfair interpretation of what he's saying. So Brooks began to get a series of violent and obviously paranoid letters from Tony. Brooks phoned McGuire, who was one of the heads of the Broadmoor Hospital at the time, to say that it would be irresponsible to let Tony go, which, spoiler alert, he had kind of a point. Correct. But only because he was refusing to provide him with equivalent medical care. Yeah, like, it's, like, one of those things where, like, it's still kind of his fault, though. Like, yeah, he was correct, Tony wasn't well enough to be released, but, like, also, like, th there was options he could have used to minimize the risks Then here. put him in a private hospital, because, and this undermines the whole argument that he made, he personally offered to, quote, more than compensate the British government for the cost of keeping Tony at Broadmoor. Oh, but you don't have enough money. He basically just wanted his son off the continent. He did not want to live on the same mm -hmm. continent as his own child. Honestly, this is probably, just re this reads is just like, I don't want to have, I want to have the convenient excuse of living on a different tectonic plate not to visit you. Like, I want to be a shitty human being. I just don't want to be seen as a shitty human being. Pretty much. And Broadmoor is part of the NHS, so you can't actually pay to keep somebody there. It's not a private institution. It's not a country club. You, there's some things money can't buy, and the NHS is one of them. So Dr. McGuire, Tony's doctor, replied that Tony was not being released due to the cost of his care, but because they felt Tony would do better in his own cultural environment. In this case, New York City. Um, right. So as someone who lives in New York and studies abnormal psychology, I can personally confirm that, like, this is not what I would call an enriching environment to improve your mental health. Not exactly. I, I would assume more trees? Better air quality and less stress. Central Park is the only reason I haven't leapt off a fire escape onto an unsuspecting person's back and just eaten them. <laughs> the, the only thing uh, keeping me from turning into fucking cannibal Batman is the existence of yeah. Central Park. Like, I don't know how much has changed in the intervening decades, but I was there for, like, less than three weeks. Speaking as somebody who is, like, somewhat, in like, mentally fragile, but not, like... Tony Bakelin fragile. Like, it was a very stressful, like, sensory environment. It's a, it is a loud city. It is loud in a way that, like, I don't, I never truly understood that a city could be. And New York has only gotten better over the last couple decades. Mm -hmm. In the 1970s, New York was basically just a series of public porn theaters run by talking rats. Like, that's, 
basically all there was to it. It was the uh, the scream of a massive hu- of teeming mass of humanity struggling against itself to like to to gasp free br- free air. 1970s New York City is the reason that my parents are still uncomfortable with me living in Harlem. This was not a good time for the city. No. At all. The murder rate, I think, has literally decimated. And by literally decimated, I mean it is actually 10% of what it used to be. It used to just be drive-by shootings and pizza. That's... New York is, like, a much safer city now than it ever was prior to the 1990s. And it's bad for your mental health now. Living here <clears throat> is just an extended exercise in seeing how much you can endure because before you end up naked and screaming on the subway. Yeah. It, it's 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 sensorily complex in any number of ways. It is loud. It is smelly. It is stressful. It is constantly chaotic. And like if you like, and that's hard on the mental health of even very stable people without any predisposition towards mental illness. Like it's a great city, but it's not a good. It's not a non-stressful, relaxing environment. No, no. I'm a pretty stable human being, and I am one unexpectedly sticky surface away from giving lap dances on the six. <laughs> you know, that's, Fair. it's not, it's not good. There was a rumor going around that Brooks wanted to keep Tony in Broadmoor so that he could take Tony's inheritance. Brooks has adamantly denied this. Please don't sue us. Tony's discharge report is a really interesting read. So Tony was a schizophrenic with low insight, which is true of about half of people who have schizophrenia. So mm. Tony was not able to tell when he was psychotic and when he wasn't. Around yeah, around and, half and of you, schizophrenics know. Yeah, yeah. it's it low insight is so much harder to treat though. I know a lot of people who like sometimes have delusions, but like most most of my friends who have delusions, they know when they're not quite feeling things right. Like they understand they're like, yeah, like I think somebody is like trying to take shots at me from the windows, but like I don't think it's real. Like <laughs> it helps when when someone knows when they need to go to the fucking hospital, it it kind of helps. Mm-hmm. So in 1979, while still at Broadmoor, after years of apparently moping around the hospital making little progress, Tony started to calm the fuck down and started socializing and engaging in his treatment a little more normally. Um, Unfortunately, at this point, the doctor started to reduce his medication, and Tony had been off his medication completely for around six months when he was released. This isn't actually as irresponsible as it sounds, as we already covered in the Yuba County 5 episode. Schizophrenia medication has very, very heavy side effects, and schizophrenia does go into remission in a lot of people. You don't turn back into a psychotic pumpkin the moment you go off your medication like you're some kind of schizophrenic Cinderella. Like, you've you've got time, and it's not super ethical to keep people on heavy, difficult medication with horrific side effects for years when they might not need it. Modern psychiatric medication is still very hard on the body, but, like, the older stuff was brutal. And we haven't made like, a lot of headway in antipsychotics. Yeah, we're, mm-hmm. we are kind of using the same antipsychotics now that we were using decades ago. Like, if you go to a hospital and you're hard to control, you're gonna get clonopin, which is the same thing yeah. they would have given you in the 70s. Like, Hope you don't mind lactating. Yay! My favorite Yay. activity. Um... <laughs> what i'm all about it's basically a hobby you know what i live in new york at this point anything that's free i'm down for (laughs) (laughs) even if it's human breast milk (laughs) (laughs) costs me nothing um (laughs) put it on your cereal oh god just cost savings all around 
the fact that Tony wasn't psychotic does not mean that he was mentally healthy. He he wasn't. He was still not in a good place upon leaving the hospital. He just wasn't actively in a psychotic episode. Tony wanted to go home to New York and fought his father on this. He frequently requested to go back to New York City, and in the end, he got his way. His psychiatrist's letter firmly states, however, that he should be kept in a high-security hospital in New York, not just released onto the fucking Lexington Avenue. No, like, you shouldn't just, like, release him into the wild like he's an unwanted goldfish, which you also shouldn't do. No, don't, don't. <laughs> They're an invasive species. Please don't put alligators in the New York City sewers. No, but, like, let me guess, they full-on baby alligatored him. Yeah, for sure. So the thing is, is that nobody actually checked to make sure that Tony was placed in a psychiatric unit in America, because as soon as he left the country, the British no longer had any jurisdiction over him and no right to tell him what to do. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he returned to American soil, and since he hadn't been convicted of any crime in the USA, the US had no authority to force him into the hospital. So as soon as he landed in US soil, he was pretty much good to go. Oh no. In a letter from the Broadmoor social worker upon Tony's release, he fretted that public psychiatric care in America was shitty, and it still is, and that Tony did not have the independent financial resources to afford private care. Correct. (laughs) Some attempts were made to find a halfway house for Tony, but they were all full, and the only ones that had space did not accept murderers. So, they tried, I guess. (sighs) He's from one of the richest families in the country, and his father isn't helping him like he this this should be like the last person who is struggling to find appropriate private mental care yeah i mean there's a lesson to be learned here about mental health and also not having a shitty dad i mean that's really i see the place where people go long go wrong it's just like young people with schizophrenia choosing to have shitty fathers it's it's gotta stop Brooks wrote one final letter to Broadmoor to try to prevent his son's release. He was not in contact with his son at the time. Brooks told the hospital that Tony had very few friends of his own age left in New York City, and none of them were were in a position to house him or looked after his care. He had no family left in New York City except for two grandmothers who were in their 80s, and 87-year-old Nina Daly was in poor health, lived in a tiny apartment, and required a live-in nurse. Tony's trust fund would be exhausted in 1981, and after that, Tony would have no means of supporting himself. But they released him anyway, so he ended up going to live with Nina Daly, the 87-year-old who lived in the tiny apartment and had shitty health, because nobody else would step up to the plate. And hmm? maybe even, like, somewhat physically resembles her daughter, question mark? Mm, that's what you want to do when... Yeah, that's... Mm. A friend of Tony's paternal grandmother that none of Tony's other friends seem to have heard of accompanied him back to America, and after that, he was on his own with Nini against, you know, common sense, doctor's orders, whatever the fuck you want to call it. The advice of everyone who isn't an idiot. And even some of the people who are. Pretty much. This is not a hard... I know mental health is complicated, and it's full of gray zones, and morality is not absolute, but don't. This is not... This is not good. Do not put a dangerously psychotic individual with a history of violence who is still not well, alone, with a octogenarian in poor health. Yeah, if anybody listening to this podcast is still under the idea, impression that this was a good idea, Tony talked about the murder itself on the plane ride back to New York with this mysterious friend of his grandmother's. He described the events and said, Mummy was dying. I knelt down and turned her face toward me and said, What is your name? Who are you? But it doesn't matter because Mummy and I are one. It really doesn't matter at all. So, 
That's a yikes. So straight up horror movie shit. Oh yeah, this we're we're just one pair of jump roping twins away from full on Stanley Kubrick. I think it's like particularly the word mummy being used by mummy. a man in his thirties. Yeah, that's weird. Oh, and also. Nobody actually told Nini that Tony was coming until the day before he arrived. Oh. She had less than 24 hours notice that he was coming. So everybody involved pretty much fucked the dog on this one. Oh, they didn't just fuck the dog. They took the dog for dinner. They brought the dog home. They stared lovingly into its eyes. Then they pulled the wig off and just freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> this is a weird running metaphor in this episode. We often have weird metaphors, but this one, this one's, um... Like a St. Bernard in a wig. It's just, it's too much. <laughs> Courtney, I thought you meant something to me. I thought, I, I, thought, I thought we had something. I thought you were the only woman who truly understood me. Now I just find out you're a St. Bernard in a wig. <laughs> this is why we don't let you date. <laughs> we're going to find you screaming at a standard poodle on a street corner, and I don't know how I'm going to get you out of the hospital after that one. Um... Yikes. So, when Tony got home, it was clear from the beginning that this had been a fuck-up. Nini, because she's not an incompetent enough guardian already, had recently broken her hip and required round-the-clock nurse care. The first thing Tony saw when he got home was a huge portrait of his mother that Nini kept on the wall. He threw a fit and insisted that she take it down. That's when... That moment is when the woman who had been accompanying him said that she knew this had been a mistake. So apparently the creepy plane stuff was not enough for her. The fact that Nini had no heads up was not enough for her. But a tantrum no. over his mother's portrait, she's like, oh no, no, this was this was bad. Like, like, how little did you know about him before you accompanied him on the plane? Like, nobody should be able to, like, go whatever the length of hours it takes to get from England to New York thinking that this guy is fine. I don't I don't even think you need to get on the plane. Just the sentence, okay. We're going to send a 30-something year old psychotic, schizophrenic, unmedicated murderer to go live with an infirm 87-year-old woman who requires full-time nurse care and strongly resembles the woman he killed. Huzzah. I actually don't know if she did or not. That's not clear, but so, Nini said that she could tell Tony was not well from the very moment he arrived, but wouldn't allow anybody to phone Tony's other relatives for help. She was a proud woman, she was going to do this on her own. Tony discovered that Nini's own mind was starting to go as well, and that she'd begun to get confused. In his letters, he describes them as hallucinations, but I, from his descriptions, it sounds like his grandmother actually suffered from delusions, which is mm. not surprising because she was 87. Yeah, like, she's an elderly woman. He wasn't with her very long, spoiler alert, but at one point, she became convinced that her sister was staying with them and purchased and cooked extra food and laid a place for her sister at the table. When her sister didn't show up at the table to eat this food, she became convinced that her sister was hiding under the bed in the apartment. Because delusions are tricky. Yeah... She also became convinced several times in the middle of the night that Tony's cousin had crawled into bed with her and slept on the floor to give him more room. So, she's sleeping on the floor after hip surgery to let her imaginary friend take the bed, and that's... That's kind of alarming behavior for a woman tasked with taking care of a violent 33-year-old schizophrenic. Brooks was actually came to New York shortly after Tony arrived home, and Tony asked to see him. Brooks said no, although he said that he did not fear his son. He believed that Tony was strictly a woman-beater, and he actually kind of had a point there. 
Tony only attack women. Yeah. Because you can never be too gay to be a misogynist. <laughs> Although he gets a pass because his mother was fucking him, so, you know. Yeah, like, it's complicated. It's complicated. But, like, but like Brooke's reaction here is like, oh, yeah, like, I'm not afraid of him. He's only gonna attack, like, my elderly, infirm, former former mother-in-law. It's like... That's fine. That's fine. It's, it's not like we've specifically put him with a with a, a frail, infirm woman who he could physically overpower. Not my circus, not my monkeys. Except in this <laughs> case, very much both his circus and monkeys. He's just irresponsible. Yeah, he's just a very bad ringleader, and he's drunk behind the, behind the behind the freak show tent. So Tony had promised over and over and over again that he wanted to take care of Nini, and he was going to prepare all her meals, and he was going to look after her. But that's this is not what happened. Tony's presence meant that there was no room in the apartment anymore for a night nurse, and so Tony had promised to take care of his grandmother through the night and make her breakfast in the morning. He literally did not do this. He stayed up all night listening to records and ignored his grandmother's request to turn the volume down, and he would be asleep by the time the day nurse arrived. So he basically went full Guantanamo Bay tactics and just listened to loud music all night and kept his grandmother from getting any sleep. Like, pe- people use this shit to break terrorists. <laughs> it's not... <laughs> this is the same tactics that South Korea uses to antagonize North Korea. It's not... It's not good. Tony's friends immediately turned their backs on him. He talked constantly about the murder, and his erratic behavior really frightened people. They started making excuses to avoid him. He called up several friends to ask if he could go and stay with them, as his grandmother's apartment was small, hot, and contained several photos of his mother, as well as his mother's ashes, and it was driving him nuts. But nobody wanted him in their house. So his very first week back, his mental health basically just went completely, utterly, and totally to shit. He complained about the jet lag. It's like, I don't blame these people. Like, I don't, I don't blame them. No! But like, at the you same time, no like, somebody please help this kid. <laughs> Yeah, to be clear, you have no moral or otherwise obligation to keep a dangerous, mentally ill person in your house because you just don't. You get to live if you want to. But yeah, it's a shame that nobody stepped up to, like, put him somewhere where he couldn't hurt people. On his end, Tony blamed his disintegrating mental health on the jet lag and said it was badly affecting him. He was up all night playing music 24-7 and became incredibly irritable. He set up an altar to his dead mother and began to worship her ashes, performing what Nini's nurse described as black magic rituals with the ashes. <laughs> as as you do when you're mourning a parent that you killed. Mm. Oh, this is not a good environment. No. So Nini confided to a friend that she was afraid of him, which kind of makes sense because six days after arriving in New York City, he stabbed the fucking shit out of her too. <laughs> yeah, this is... I'm laughing because, like, of course he did. Because what else do you do? There's just, the human brain is not really built to handle matricide or attend to, I don't know, grand matricide. Sometimes all you can do is laugh. A viacide. Is that what it is? I, I don't know if there's, like, an official version of that, but, like, I'm just smashing the Latin word for grandmother with the Latin suffix for murder so i'm kind of hoping that there's like not enough grandchild on grandmother murder that we have to have an official term <laughs> Do we have to i'm have okay with there word? not being a term for this yeah i don't think there actually is i just i, I just that popped into my head avicide is when you kill a bird oh some people just call that hunting or dinner or birding avicide is way more dramatic what's for dinner tonight avicide <laughs> So at 9am on a Sunday morning, Nini's nurse showed up and Tony did not let her into the apartment right away. 
When he did come to the door, he said, Lena, quick, get the police. I just stabbed my grandmother. <laughs> this guy's a lot of things, but he's not a good criminal. <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> yeah. Getting right to the point there, Tony. He's, he's, his after game needs work. Um, yeah. on, on the front end... He he's definitely he's definitely got like the basics down. On the back end, his cleanup's a mess. Come on, man, get it together. Stab your grandmother pop properly. So the nurse ran down the stairs and called the NYPD from the corner and waited outside the building for them to show up. When they arrived, Tony came running out of the bedroom screaming, "She won't die!" Which is not a good way to greet the police. <laughs> The policeman grabbed him, but he didn't struggle. He just kept shouting, She won't die! The knife won't go in! And she keeps screaming! I can't understand it! (laughs) Why do people scream when you stab them? This is puzzling. I'm confused too, Tony. Uh, When the police went into the bedroom, they found Nini in the corner in her nightgown absolutely covered in blood. She was wearing a satin nightgown which didn't absorb blood, so it was literally just pouring off of her. Mm. Yeah, they're very, they're very hydrophobic. Yeah, which is, you know, useful when you spill water. It's not really meant for blood. The ambulance arrived to get her, and I mean, she was a tough old bird because she actually fucking survives this story. <laughs> Took it on the chin. Jeez. She outlived Tony. Mm-hmm. Tony doesn't get to live, but this lady had a Needy couple Daly years left gets in her. the last laugh. She may be 87 years old with a hip replacement, and she may have been stabbed numerous times, but it's gonna take more than that. So, Tony gave an account of what happened with the, with the attack on his grandmother, and it, it's something. I'm not, I'm not even gonna warn you what's fucked up about it. I'm just gonna read it, and you see if you can spot it. It's very subtle. He said, I felt I was being denied physical and eye contact with my grandmother. There is something in my eye that stops me from meeting other people face to face. I suppose if it meant having sex with my grandmother, I might have wanted to have sex with her. At the end of that week, I knew that I would be unhappy with her. I was calling the airlines to fly to Mallorca or England, but my grandmother, who was a very mysterious woman, tried to prevent me from making these calls. I kept hearing voices, including my grandmother talking in my head, but I couldn't hear her voice clearly because there was noise around and the voices kept bothering me. The voices are those of people I know and people I don't know. They sound like a machine. They talk back to me and it really bothers me a lot. The voices tell me that I'm a savior, that I'm Satan, that I'm an angel, that I'm royalty. Sometimes they say that I'm a dirty little man or a bad woman or a dog. They also give me helpful messages. I hear them all the time. I also hear music and the music lifts my soul. We were in my grandmother's bedroom, but she wouldn't shut up. She kept talking and talking and talking and she wouldn't let me make the phone call. Then I threw the telephone across the room at her and she fell down. When she fell down, I felt very bad for her. I didn't want her to go to the hospital with broken bones and suffer more. So in order to help her, I rushed to the kitchen, took a little knife from the drawer, went back, and stabbed her in the breast. I wanted to kill her so I could liberate her. Not because I was angry, just to liberate her from the mistake I'd made and from the suffering she was experiencing at that time, and from the time that I was 13 years old. All this happened because I was denied physical contact with my grandmother and homosexual relationships with anyone else. So... Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, that is a that's lot. a lot. That is yeah. a lot. We we covered a lot of ground. That is this a, is lot, a of lot of ground. crazy in not a lot of paragraphs. This is this is like twenty pounds of crazy in a ten pound bag. It it is. We're just we're leaking crazy. It's all over our hands, and we're t- it's just 
gotta stab your grandmother because she won't fuck you. I don't know why you don't. Nobody understands this. It's makes perfect it's sense to obvious. me. It's obvious. I stabbed her because she. I, I I stabbed her because she wouldn't have sex with me. Isn't the most inexplicable motivation, but it's weird when it's your nana. It's words in an order. Yeah. That make grammatical sense, but other than that, I mean. It's weird when it's your nana. It's not relatable, no. No, it's it's not Don't hashtag, stab people. It's not hashtag relatable. Not squad goals. Do not no. stab people because they won't have incestual sex with you. Don't yeah. do it. Do not add this to your Insta story. Oh, Christ. So Nina survived the attack because Tony managed to strike Bone every time he stabbed her. He basically stabbed her eight times in the sternum, which is not <laughs> really a good way to kill somebody. He got weirdly lucky with Barbara that he managed to slip between her ribs, but... Your apparently, was not, apparently yeah. that was like beginner's luck because this guy is not good at stabbing soft bits. He's not. If you stab somebody's sternum and you can't get through it, because of course you can, it's a little puck of bone, mm-hmm. don't just keep stabbing the same location. It will still be sternum. <laughs> Again, not an advice podcast. Sternum is very good at object permanence. It continues to exist even after you stab it. I think this is a really sort of poetic, you know? Some people say that the fastest way to a, a person's heart is through the stomach. It's actually through the the third and the fourth rib. Knife to the chest. Mm. Um, so Nini did not want news of this attack to get out, and she tried to keep it quiet, which means that everybody knew immediately. Obviously. They're a bunch of fucking gossips. They have nothing better to do. Nini said, it was too much for me. Too much. It could have been dangerous. It nearly killed me. I wasn't in a lot of pain. It didn't hurt because I loved him so much. You're all fucking crazy. What a family. You're all You're nuts. all fucking nuts. It could it could have been dangerous. He stabbed me eight times in the dead center of my chest and somebody could have gotten really hurt, young man. Mm-hmm. You, someone could have lost an eye. Like, he's not a child who hits baseballs through windows. This is a man who keeps attempting to murder his female family members. Yeah. Which he doesn't have a lot of left, notably. So, in his interrogation with the NYPD, Tony talked about his mother's murder and how it had only taken one blow, but Nini just wouldn't die. How dare she? What a bitch. (laughs) They recognized pretty immediately that Tony was not fine, that he was deeply disturbed, and they initially kept him confined in his grandmother's living room instead of trying to handcuff him. The room was filled with grotesque pieces of art that Tony had done at Broadmoor, and the officer later remarked that when he saw the drawings, he couldn't believe any mental asylum would have let Tony out. (laughs) Just from the drawings. Fair. You're like, just, just this, just this, this man's artistic expression is reason enough for him to be locked up. I mean, the man liked to draw his mother decapitated, so mm. people had a point. Tony, or Brooke said of Nini, there was only one person both silly enough and generous enough to want that released tiger in her house, and she was almost killed for her goodness. After learning of the attack, Brooks destroyed every memento he had of his son. Every painting, every letter, every drawing, everything of Tony's. He's so dramatic. I, I just like. It's not even his mom. It's Come not even on, his man. mom. Chill the fuck out. And like, you didn't care enough about her safety a week ago to like actually make sure that Tony wasn't being housed with her. And you care so right, much. Right, you could have now. avoided this. Just if you'd ponied up for a private hospital, we wouldn't be in this goddamn mess. But no. No. So Tony was taken to the infamous Rikers Island, which is not far from where I sit. Because Also, because his life was basically just a tour of the English-speaking world's most notorious prisons. Mm. Um, And he stayed at Rikers for eight months for psychiatric assessment and treatment. He told a psychiatrist that he could not call the hospital to see how his grandmother was doing because she could communicate with him through special powers. 
which is basically just a fucking checklist on the schizophrenia yeah, inventory. Yeah, it's just like, hi, I'm schizophrenic. That's what that means. That's all that is. You don't need to read the DSM too closely. That's That's not good. No, that's pretty classic. That's pretty textbook. Tony also reported in a letter from prison that he attempted to call for an ambulance for Nini for half an hour before realizing that he couldn't because the phone was broken because he'd thrown it at her. He was initially found fit to stand trial, but like as a forensic psychologist in training, I feel I need to point out that that is a stupid low bar. Mm-hmm. Children can pass fit to stand trial, so it doesn't mean anything about his mental state. He pled not guilty on September 19th, 1980, with the intent of using an insanity defense. His lawyer asked that the matter be adjourned for several weeks for a motion on the issue of bail to be held, and he asked that bail be set. Some of Tony's friends supported this because nobody in the story fucking learns. Ever. Mm-hmm. At all. Ever. Never. The, ju- the judge later stated that Tony had absolutely no chance of making bail. Fair. Because mm. some people have a shred of objectivity here. A little bit. Just for fun, I'm going to add in a section of the psych report that they did a psychological report to determine his sanity at the time of the crime while on Rikers Island. And this is what part of it said. The purpose of this evaluation was to determine Mr. Bakeland's mental status at the time of the alleged crime. When asked where he was born, Mr. Bakeland replied, I don't know. I was told that I was born in Manhattan. That's what my mother told me, but I have no siblings. In fact, as far as I know, she told me that her friend is the son of Sam, and he is also my brother because he is my age. When asked who raised him, he answered, I think I was raised by my father, mother, and grandmother, but it was all very confusing. Our family is spiritually everywhere, so my mother's death would not bother her. We all live together, a few people, but we are all the same person. A close friend of mine is a very powerful magician, and he made such magic that I could kill my mother with the same knife that he made the magic with. At this point, the patient started talking quite irrelevantly about his father, saying, I don't remember him loving me terribly. I don't know what exactly he wanted me to do. He is a physicist and writes many books. We are very rich people from his family. They sell stocks and real estate, and I have a lot of money, which is not bad, but I never worked for it. So. Accurate? Yeah. But yeah, irrelevant. <laughs> the psychologist who treated Tony at Rikers Island actually thought that Tony's stories about his family were all delusions. <laughs> until he looked it up and realized that, no, this was, he was, this was real. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. like it does sound, it just sounds like, oh yeah, like my family's very rich and like my my father's in the stock market. It just sounds like the sort of thing a crazy person would tell you. <laughs> my great grandfather invented plastic. <laughs> <laughs> sure <he> did. <laughs> oh, sounds completely deluded. Yeah, there you go. So Tony was popular in prison. He gave away a lot of money in commissary items and frequently paid for other inmates' bail or just wrote large checks to their family members. He was also known to trade commissary goods for homosexual acts from other inmates. <laughs> he had oh, a friend in no. prison that he may have been in love with, a man named John Murray who tried to convince him to stop giving away all his money. <laughs> Fair enough. Tony was convinced that he would be let out soon, so he probably was delusional after all. Mm. And he and John apparently traveled, planned to travel the world together. The friend was transferred to Auburn Prison, upstate New York, shortly afterwards. Tony appeared in court on March 5th, 1980, but the court was adjourned as his medical records had not yet arrived from England. He appeared again on March 20th, where he requested a courthouse visit with his grandmother. She actually wanted to visit him, but was unable to because Rikers is not wheelchair accessible. <laughs> Which, I've read it, I read it a couple times, that's, that's what's in the book, that's the legit reason. <laughs> Riker, you can't get there by wheelchair. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know if it's still wheelchair accessible, I imagine they must have fixed it at some point yeah like yeah, they no. must have fixed that it, it would be ludicrous otherwise like like how how are like 
All all the wheelchair bound murderers supposed to get around. Think about right? it. Right, it's ableist. Ableist. We can we, the disabled can kill and and rob and 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 besmirch just as well as anybody else. You sound too full of pride about that. <laughs> hashtag That's... hashtag disability game. We have a rule about self-incrimination on this goddamn podcast. When you're in a wheelchair, podcast. you're closer to people's intestines. Okay, too much. <laughs> That's, you're now aiding and abetting, so you need to stop. Um, Tony seemed to handle the denial well, all things considered. He apparently looked like a wreck, but he appeared to be in okay spirits in the courthouse and mouthed, I loved you, or I love you, I love you, I'm sorry, to Nini from across the court. Oh, that's sweet. They were still waiting on some medical records, so court was again adjourned until April. Tony had apparently been expecting that he would be released on bail that day, but he didn't outwardly seem to take the delay overly hard. He returned to Rikers around 3.30pm with a plastic bag and asked to be locked in his cell. At 3.50, the guard did his rounds and noted that Tony was sitting up in bed. At 4.30, he was lying in bed covered with a blanket with with both feet and one hand visible. At 4.39, a nurse came to his cell to dispense medication, but he did not respond. The cell was opened, and Tony still did not respond. When they pulled the blanket off his head, they realized that he had the plastic bag wrapped tightly around his head. Resuscitation was attempted, but Tony was declared dead at 4.45 p.m. So, the great-grandson of the inventor of plastic apparently killed himself with a plastic bag. Oh, that's a fucked up way to go. Brooks, because he's a shithead to the very end, said... Of his own son's suicide, quote, it was a beautiful ending in plastic too. I'm just gonna say this. The grave of Brooks Bakeland is a gender neutral washroom. <laughs> it's hard to be this bad of a father. I once heard a story of like Joseph Stalin reacting to his son attempting suicide and failing with like he can't even shoot right. It's actually, this is actually slightly more callous. This is up there, yep. In a letter to Nini after the fact, Brooks wrote that Tony was an enormous failure of intelligence. Brooks became disenchanted with society and with people after the murder. Uh, Much like his famous grandfather, he just got worse and worse as he got older. His cousin Celine once came to visit him by surprise because he would literally flee if people let him know that they were coming. And she said that she'd heard he was having an affair with a woman who'd left her husband for him. He replied, quote, She was such a good cook that we used to have to spend two hours every day shopping, and then two hours preparing the food, and then we'd eat for another hour, and then, because I didn't want to be a male chauvinist pig, I'd wash the dishes and there'd be ten dishes in five pans, and I just got so sick of the whole thing that I finally threw her out. So, he literally had a woman leave her husband for him and then kicked her out because she was too good of a cook. So... I'm just gonna say, I'm almost kind of disappointed that he is dead, because I want to take a shit on his doorstep. (laughs) I just, I viscerally want to take an egregious dump on this man's pillow. Right? Like, this is a podcast about a man who literally murdered his mother after she forced him to have sex with her. And I still hate Brooks more than both of them. I still hate him the most. (laughs) When his cousin asked Brooks who cooked for him now, he replied, simple. Sunday I have a pound of hamburger, Monday I have a pound of potatoes, Tuesday I have a pound of spinach, and so on. So I have one dish and one pan. Because that's how sane people live, just eating a fucking pound of hamburger out of a pan. (laughs) That's the kind of thing, like, depressed people do. (laughs) Yeah, that's 
It's not fine. Like, who, um, the person who actively chooses to live like this isn't fine. Brooks, for the record, never believed that Tony killed himself. He believed that the death, quietly, with no fuss or no note, was grandiose enough for Tony. He believes that Tony would have taken his life much more dramatically. And in fairness, suffocation with a plastic bag is both weird and rare. Brooks believed that Tony was murdered by his jailers. Tony had allegedly begun sleeping with guards, and he believes that Tony may have threatened to expose this at some point. Brooks also said both he and his mother lived by violence, and so they were bound to die by the same. I always knew it, and that was one of the reasons I had to get away from them. He also said the terrible thing was that in his secret heart, he always thought that in the end I could save him. Like his mother, he was without fear, and daddy would come somehow out of somewhere like Superman. They both believed that. Sure they did, buddy. I just think Brooks is an asshole. He's just an ass. He's just the He's worst just so person. Terrible. He's just so awful. <laughs> you, you don't think that's dramatic enough? Like, that's your main critique of the fact that your son is dead? Like, and, like, and you, you just, like, you're just, like, too good of a person, and, like, you just couldn't struggle against the toxicity of those two people. Like, you're the, you're the worst person to ever exist. Like, you're, like, the <laughs> ideal form of a, you're the platonic ideal of a rich asshole. That's what you yeah, are. pretty much. You're almost a parody in how much of an unrelenting prick you are. <laughs> yeah. He deserves to be alone. When your son kills your ex-wife, or I guess they were currently married, when your son kills your wife on your anniversary and then kills himself in jail and somehow you're still the victim, yeah, this incredibly long podcast has only really scratched the surface of the Bakeland family and their fascinating lives. There are actually still details I didn't have time to get into, like Leo Bakeland's which is the the famous grandfather, strange, hostile relationship with his feminist wife, or all the novels that Barbara inspired while she was still alive. But if you are interested in learning more, because this is a car accident you can't look away from, check out the novel Savage Grace by Natalie Robbins and Stephen M. L. Aronson. Go in deeper. <laughs> we have to go There's deeper. There's another level. You can just spelunk in this fucked up family for as long as you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you're never coming back here. up. There's like a point of no return that I went careening past several days ago. You're not going to make it back to the surface. We had to send like a team in to find Janelle. Like you were like a, a lost team of like Taiwanese Boy Scouts. When you get too close to the event horizon of a black hole and it just fucking sucks you in. Like that's that's where I'm at. The event horizon of the Bakeland family. This podcast, like, episode may be over, but know that, like, for the rest of my life, I'm just churning this in my mind. There's no sleep for me anymore. <laughs> there is there is no rest. There is there is no sleep. There is only what the fuck does that mean? Pretty much. Peacock in paradise? Bugger a prosecutor? What the fuck? <laughs> right? If you figure out something and you share it, please, let's all join join in the madness. We shall dance madly upon the lip of the volcano together. And then I will push you in. together, maybe we can hold hands and save save ourselves. Like the toys from Toy Story 3. Anyway, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. I'm Jessica. And I am a shell of what used to be Janelle. And we are fat, Fat, French, French, and and fabulous. fabulous.